Hello, welcome to Dyslexia Explored. I am Darius Nomderon and I have a, a really special guest today. I've been trying to persuade this, uh, this person, this guest to come onto the podcast for a good couple of years now. I'd like to introduce to you someone who has got an MBE from the Queen for services to children and family with dyslexia over the last 50 years. Um, Moira has been an educationalist and a huge contributor in Scotland to dyslexia in all sorts of ways that I can't even summarize right now. But we're gonna hear a, a fantastic tour de force of uh, stories and experience in this podcast, which I suspect will end up being two podcasts. So, Moira, it's fantastic to have you on here. Pleasure to be here. Um, Moira, I'm really looking forward to hearing this story. And, and you, I don't even know it all. I've had a quick taste. But I know you're not dyslexic. Uh, we ask the same questions of everyone's dyslexia story, whether they're dyslexic or experiencing dyslexia from the outside as an educationist or a parent. And the, the four main questions we first ask are, you know, what was life like before you noticed dyslexia? What was the wake-up call? What was the challenges that were presented to you? And what do you feel you the rewards you've got out of it are? So could you start us from the beginning? You know, what was life like before you noticed dyslexia? And what was your wake-up call? I discovered dyslexia at a very early age as a child when my younger brother failed to learn to read and write when he went to school. Uh, and as someone who had learned to read and write before I went to school, I was duly concerned and asked why he wasn't learning. And his teacher explained uh, that he was word blind, that some people were word blind and that he would have to work much harder than everybody else so that he could catch up. I took this on with a little bit of a pinch of salt because I knew my little brother very well and I knew that he was uh, one of these very serious children who persevered endlessly at all sorts of things. And he was a brilliant artist uh, and could do all sorts of wonderful things. Uh, and so I worried that he couldn't read and write, but hey, I was at primary school myself, so there wasn't an awful lot I could do to help. But it, I became conscious at that stage that there were other children around who couldn't learn as easily as I did, which not all children learn unless there's something like dyslexia in the family and they become aware of it. Uh, and, and this persisted. And there are various points throughout my formative educational years when I was at school uh, and in, in life beyond school. Uh, that brought it home to me that there were people that I was meeting on an equal footing, face-to-face, -face, relating to uh, perfectly easily, who, when it came to reading and writing, just couldn't do it. Uh, I'd like to write a letter, and I would write a three-page letter in my appalling handwriting uh, and get a barely literate scrawl of a few lines back uh, and that really hit home. How, that how old were you? It was you? not just, uh, at that point, I was 13. Okay. Uh, and so it, you know, it was, became clear that people 
could be just people and people that one made friends with quite easily uh, away from home. Uh, but when you try to carry on the relationship uh, in those days, it wasn't texts and phones uh, and texts on phones that actually spell for you. It was a matter of handwriting. Uh, and it, it came so easily to me that it was always a shock when I realized that it didn't come so easily to other people. Uh, and I was conscious of this on and off throughout the rest of education. When did you actually kind of start discovering dyslexia itself? Was it, obviously you've not got dyslexia, but as an educationalist, did you go into teaching quite early on? Uh, no, I set out in life to become an accountant because I had an, uh, a facility for numbers. Uh, but fortunately, I found that so incredibly boring <laughs> that I then decided to do something else. So I took a year out and went to Africa on VSO and then came back. And that's when I went to Oxford to do my dip ed. And I then moved into teaching from there, initially as a maths teacher. Uh, but very quickly realized that there was a much wider area of, of interest educationally. And I moved into what is now support for learning in England or in other areas that might be special educational needs. But within the mainstream school setting, uh, I was never tempted to go into special schools because to me, special educational needs and special schools were perhaps for very vulnerable children uh, with uh, disabilities and fragilities that, that made mainstream education perhaps dangerous for them or so that too began, challenging. So that began 50 years worth of, nearly 50 years worth of Yes, yeah, well, I started teaching in Scotland in 1969. So how many years ago was that? Probably well, about I'm, 50. I was born in in 1970, and I'm just about to turn 50. So that's 51 years. Well, there years. you go. <laughs> that, wow. that, that would do it then. So five decades of seeing mm. dyslexia in, in in children. And you've, over those, what would be fascinating is to, you've seen dyslexia's, but the perspective of dyslexia change over the last 50 years. And I, I would be fascinated, and I think the listeners would be fascinated to see how you would summarize each decade, as it were, from, from your perspective. In the 70s, how was dyslexia viewed? Well, in the 70s, dyslexia was viewed by teachers and by a lot of people outside education as a middle-class parent's excuse for their children not doing very well at school. Uh, and these are children who studied hard, apparently. They, uh, they always added the apparently. That's not my apparently. Um, okay. Who had perfect attendance at school, who had literacy and parental support and everything that would, they could be given to help them study at home, who had very the same teaching as everyone else in the school, the same input, but for some reason they just didn't respond or perform as well as everybody else. So the parents' excuse, according to the word in the 70s, was that they must be dyslexic. The children's excuse was not an excuse. It was, I did my very best. 
and it just wasn't good enough. You know, I'm obviously not as good as I thought I was. And I, I became, partly because of my background uh, in worry about people who should be literate and weren't, I started looking at it uh, as a teacher from a slightly different uh, point of view. Uh, and I had to agree with the parents in that these, you know, everything else could be ruled out. Therefore, the reason why the child wasn't achieving had to be something mysterious, call it dyslexia, we could have called it anything you like, but the reason could be slightly different in each case, but the end result was almost always the same, was an, uh, a, a child performing much less well than expected, despite all the input, which was the same as everybody else got. And it occurred to me that perhaps some children needed a little bit more than everybody else got. Uh, and and that kind of informed my, my view and my development as support for learning teacher. But as a remedial teacher, as it was in the, uh, the, the first instance, in primary schools, we had adjustment teachers so that we could adjust the children to help them, to make them literate. And if that didn't work, we then remedied what they did in the primary school at the secondary school to make the children literate. And that didn't work for... <laughs> was this full-time? Oh, yes. Uh, by 1975, okay. I was a principal teacher of, initially, principal teacher of remedial education. And then it became, they changed the title of the job. In the 80s, it was Learning Support and Special Needs, which was LSSN. Uh, I was principal teacher for that whole area. Uh, and then in the 90s, it became special needs and you know lsen learning support for special educational needs uh in the 80s the early 2000s it became additional support needs and then eventually settled down into support for learning so the title of the the job changed in scotland uh, uh and you can trace it through the language and it moved from a a language yeah. of disability to a language of support for learning uh, and in you looking at individuals and and, and changing it so uh, a kind of change in thinking in um uh, the you know, the, uh, the leaders in education both government and educational uh, the the, the Scot scottish universities that give teaching degrees uh, the education scotland and the, uh, the the various government departments uh, just by changing the focus from special needs or remedial education to supporting learning shows the, the kind of transformation over the 50 years uh, uh, that has taken place in education. What kind of training have you got during that period of time yourself? Because I know that you have been formative in uh, Dyslexia Scotland's training programs and things like that, and you're very informed about the national training situation. I think it would be fascinating for listeners for you to maybe share a little bit about your training process over those 50 years and how you've been involved in training and how you've seen teacher education change. Uh, I started off with a diploma in education from Oxford, 
which wasn't the best qualification for getting a teaching job in Scotland. However, uh, <laughs> uh, I eventually managed to get, because Scotland had registration of teachers with qualifications long before they did in England, in that you couldn't become employed in Scotland unless you met the registration criteria. Uh, one of, uh, and one of the criteria was a postgraduate qualification in teaching, uh, which having done in, in England meant my registration was slightly skewed. Uh, but we sorted that out and I was started off teaching maths. And in those days, <laughs> the early 70s, we had in 1972, which I remember as the decimalization year, uh, we had the raising of the school leaving age in Scotland from 15 to 16, which meant children were having to do an extra year at school. This was to ensure that children didn't drop out before sitting O-levels. Uh, and with a leaving age of 15 and Scotland, children in Scotland spending seven years in primary school before moving on to high school, some of them were dropping out before sitting exams. So there was a lot more to it than that. It also cut unemployment terrifically uh, by making all the children do an extra year at school. But there was a lot of um, additional teacher training put into place at that time uh, in order to equip we, we teachers with the skills to teach what a lot of people thought was going to be a, a recalcitrant cohort of kids who were being forced to stay at school for another year who didn't want to, uh, which didn't actually happen. Kids were quite happy to stay on for another year uh, and, and take exams. But it did open up a, a, a whole vista of issues in that a lot of children who used to be non-certificate, in other words, they were going through education but not sitting exams because they were leaving before they were old enough, before the exam diet came in, uh, uh, were suddenly being presented with exams. Uh, and it occurred to me at that point that if a child was unable to read the exam paper, even although he or she knew all the answers, they weren't going to pass the exam. So there was a whole issue opened up there. Uh, mm. And I became involved in various working parties. We used to have all sorts of working parties for everything in Scotland still do uh, with uh, about exam arrangements and I, I became involved with various psychologists and educationalists and the Scottish Qualifications Authority uh, in looking at uh, uh, arrangements for exams for children who had some kind of reason for not being able to do an exam in the same way as everyone else. Arrangements had always been in place for bilingual children so that they could have the use of a dictionary in time to look up words. Arrangements were in place for children with perhaps physical difficulties who couldn't actually hold a pencil, who were allowed to dictate. But there was nothing there for those who had this difficulty with reading to allow them to access the questions in the exam paper. Uh, and, and we looked at that. And although dyslexia was never mentioned specifically at that point, uh, it was known as specific learning difficulties, which meant being in Scotland and uh, being kind of open-minded educationally, we didn't have to say exactly why 
the child couldn't read. But we could identify this child has specific learning difficulties, which means they can't read, but they've done the exam course uh, and th they should be allowed someone to read the paper to them to allow them to answer the questions. Uh, and that came in mid-70s very, very slowly for very small numbers. Uh, and over the years, at one point, I was told by a, a, a colleague in SQA that uh, the high school I worked at in Edinburgh had more children or young people with specific learning difficulties uh, applying for arrangements and uh, which were adjustments. Or if you're in America, they're called um, accommodations, which is a word I really don't like because you're not accommodating things. What you're doing is adjusting the arrangements for the exam to uh, provide access uh, for people who otherwise might not be able to read questions. Uh, and, and so the uh, there were more at the high school I worked in than in, the, <laughs> in any single education authority in the rest of the country. And there are 32, edu 32 education authorities in the rest <laughs> of the country. And this was not, uh, you know, not because there were more young people with dyslexia at the school I was working in, but because there were teachers in the school who were able to recognize these specific difficulties. Well, well, basically, I was a, it was because it, you were there, more. I, I was it? working on education, uh, educating the staff in that there were three, three levels of teacher education. Once you were in yeah. service, uh, there was national in-service, which was the, the, the Education Scotland determining priorities that everybody needs to go on so many courses in a certain area every year. Uh, and then there was local authority in service which is the uh, the the local authority determining a priority in their area for all schools and then there was in school in service uh, mm -hmm. which is an individual school determining determining priorities for all of their staff to focus on over the time uh, and i do have to put up my hand and say yes i pushed very hard and was very fortunate to have head teachers who allowed me to do it, to put in in school in service on dyslexia, only we called it specific learning difficulties at that point, and exam arrangements or various other issues. And the, the fact we were doing them in our school meant that it was quite easy and straightforward to pick up a course that I'd prepared for my colleagues in school and transfer it to the, the education authority. This podcast is sponsored by DyslexiaProductivityCoaching.com, which helps you organize yourself creatively with a productivity system for Apple devices. Fantastic. So you're basically, would you say, a forerunner in these accommodations? There was a group of you that were sort of probably kind of yes. It, it, was, it was it was an interesting. We started off as a local group. Uh, working with SQA and uh, continued. I continued my association with SQA all the way up until quite recently. I still have the odd point of contact. Scottish Qualifications Authority. It's the, 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 the body in Scotland that awards national examination certificates.
and and that we for example at the moment we have national yes. fives and hires there's and also fives. higher national hires are what uh, there's higher national certification and diploma level only oh. these are uh, these are a combination yeah. of sqa okay. and the national academic awards committee uh, you know it it feeds into university and higher education okay so you sqa does you, go you, up I was part of a group of people so you pioneered. who uh, pioneered and pushed. I became a, a kind of local expert. In fact, the first talk I ever gave for Dyslexia Scotland, before it was Dyslexia Scotland, it was the was it the Scottish Dyslexia Association? Uh, was its earlier in, in, you know, name way back in the would be the eighties, nineties, whenever they had the, the, the national conference was on exam arrangements. Okay. So that brings us to the 80s then. Tell us more about the 80s then, if, if you could. Uh, I was using dyslexia as a word it, it, at that time be, because it, it was being refined, but it was a, a period of great change. The school I was in became the a, a kind of national music school, a school for gifted musicians. Uh, it was a, a part of the the school, and guess what? I was discovering gifted children who were in school because of the the music school, who were very dyslexic, uh, and uh, it, it, it sort of sparked my interest in uh, gifted education as well as dyslexic education. What we call uh, it used to be called the double whammy, uh, now called doubly blessed in some instances. Though uh, I still have a big question mark about dyslexia being a gift in that, yes, you may be a gifted person with dyslexia, but it's not always a gift if you're struggling to read and write if you're a child. However, we won't go into that at that point. So I was broadening my horizons into gifted and talented education and the, the impact of dyslexia on a wider range of children while still focusing very much on educating colleagues and working with exam boards to give children with dyslexia and a whole range of other issues access to exams and support and persuading colleagues that actually they didn't have to do anything different when you to, to present dyslexic children for exams, just perhaps allow them a bit more time for certain issues. Because one of the beauties of dyslexia in education for the majority of young people with dyslexia, if they're supported appropriately, is that the impact does begin to lessen as they get older and go through school. But the, the supports have to be in place for this to happen. If they're unsupported and undiagnosed, then uh, they're more likely to become disengaged rather than empowered. So take us to the 90s now. The 90s was probably for me the the, the computer age. I mean, we had been using computers uh, as as they were coming into school. But, but in the 90s, uh, I was working very hard to getting laptop computers or some kind of limited computer keyboard for all dyslexic students so that they could type and 
use spell check and so on without having to handwrite. It was a way of improving and speeding up their their writing uh, because this was before we had the software that you know, that read the text on the screen and allowed you to dictate things to the screen. Uh, we, we were in the early days uh, and we used to have these uh, little remote keyboards with a, a two-inch screen, but it would charge. The power lasted for quite a lot of time uh, and they could take their work on this machine and either print it out, transfer it to an actual desktop monster because uh, these were the, the big solid machine days. Uh, with computers, they couldn't carry them around very easily. Uh, and now we look at iPads and tablets and, and laptops and think, yes, here we are. The, the progress has been quite astonishing. But the 90s was really when we were working very hard on that and just edging into the introduction of digital exams, uh, which we did in the early 2000s. Again, I was involved in the piloting of putting exam papers onto computers. And for a significant number of young people, instead of having somebody read the exam questions and either scribe or uh, we did invent a mixture. Instead of having a scribe, they would have a laptop and a spell checker. But if, they, if their hands got tired or, or, or it, did, it didn't go very well, they were permitted to hand the laptop over to the the person who was reading, uh, who would then type to their dictation. We had various complex ways of putting exam arrangements in place, uh, but the the whole focus of supporting the education of these young people very much became preparing them and giving them the skills they needed to access a the curriculum and b the assessment system that took them on to the next stage of the curriculum. Uh, and that's what was important. I think what would be fascinating not to do just yet is to hear some of the stories that, you know, because sometimes uh, educators are like, well, if we're going to such immense efforts to read out and do this and do that, then should they really be going to university? Should they really be progressing in this area? Is it worth it? And obviously you've got a, quite a few stories on that. I don't want to go there just yet because I'd like to bring it up to full speed, full time just now, right to the point when the Queen gave you your MBE and then further. And then let's go into some of those stories. So into the 2000s, what happened in the 2000s? Well, in the 2000s, after many years of working with all sorts of people in Education Scotland, Scottish government and so on, we eventually published in 2004, the uh, Scottish Government published its Additional Support for Learning Act, uh, which embodied all of the work that had been going on before that, particularly in the 90s, as in a lot of different groups and study groups and cross-section groups and all sorts of groups in the 90s, preparing for uh, the launch of this additional support for learning, because it was a, a devolved Scottish government by then, although Scottish education was always independent of the English system. Uh, there were it was they were never ever the same system. They were always separate. But a devolved government was working on altering fund, you setting up proper funding and staffing 
and training and so on. Unfortunately, the the streamlining throughout a lot of the the underpinning good stuff along with some of the the bathwater that was allowed to run away in that we used to have in Scotland a, a specific budget allocated to training teachers in some form of skills needed to teach children with specific needs. Uh, it could be visually impaired children or hearing impaired children or children with dyslexia. We were very involved in the whole range of these. And the, some, Scot some of the Scottish universities provided an advanced diploma, which was two thirds of a master's degree in this uh, additional support needs or special needs, as it was known as uh, at the time it came in. I think, uh, that, and this started in the early 80s and went on until the early 2000s when it, it, it was changed because of the whole inclusion agenda, uh, which kind of altered the balance of the way things were at universities. Uh, and so the, this budget uh, meant that maybe six teachers a year could be taken out of school for a whole year and replaced with a, a supply teacher and sent back to university to do a full year's course on their area of special needs um, uh, and you work in other schools and other areas. Um, uh, I did this in the... In contrast, Moira, you know, current teachers in their training in Scotland right now, how many hours or days or weeks training on dyslexia do they get None. now? Uh, there is no advanced diploma anymore. You have to go to England to get the... Uh, the postgraduate training specifically in dyslexia uh, because the in 2009 okay. the Scottish government well the universities uh, uh, the first time the seven teach you know, seven awarding universities for teacher qualifications came together and published a policy for inclusion which was to cover the whole of the uh, additional support needs area of children the, the full range and uh, this meant that uh, they looked at all sorts of things and they were going to be starting with dyslexia. Pre-service teachers, or teachers in training, were going to be given input in the whole range. Prior to that time, they had maybe a day in college where they had two or three people coming in and talking to them about supporting learners, additional support needs uh, of whatever area, but nothing specific. And they would maybe have to do a, a study on one of their uh, school placements on something in that area. Uh, but there was no specific input. And uh, as far as I'm aware, although they, uh, they put a, a, a lot of money and a lot of time and effort into designing a new streamlined system common to all universities, uh, nothing really has changed except there is now a website called Addressing Dyslexia that's uh, that was developed and paid for by Scottish government to put all of this knowledge uh, onto a, a, an accessible website free of charge. Uh, and there are no. So, in in summary, basically, a new teacher before they go into the class gets 
a day at the most with regard to special education needs. Well, probably. Is that correct? Plus an essay or or, or a study or a shadowing of a child or something during uh, during one of their teaching placements uh, so that it could be. Okay, so how many teachers do we teach a year in Scotland to go out into the schools? Are we talking thousands, hundreds? All? <laughs> well, se- several hundreds. There aren't as many as there used to be. Yeah. Because inclusion has meant that all children are uh, included in mainstream education with okay. very you know, specific exceptions. Children for whom it would not be in their best interests to be there. You know, severely autistic children, for example, would be tortured. Uh, you know, it would be cruelty yeah. to put them into a busy uh, mainstream school. Uh, and so, with these few exceptions, all children are in mainstream school with appropriate support designed to meet their individual needs. So we lost uh, these, which doesn't really. So we lost these six you know, a whole year's worth of training on this as, as anchor points each year for, for different mm-hmm. teachers. And so that's the yeah. t- 2000s, t- 2010s, the last sort of, uh, well, where are we? Well, the now? 10s, the, you, we're way back to where we were in the 1960s, except that more people now, more teachers and more people generally now know about dyslexia and we now know that dyslexia is not something in the imagination because the thing that really crunched it all was the uh, the MRI scan. As a, a, a team from uh, a university in Lyon in France and from Edinburgh University uh, worked on MRI, looking at MRI scan, brain scans of brains, uh, and they... They concluded uh, there was something going on in America as well. There was, uh, I think, at uh, Harvard, there were some studies yeah. uh, using MRIs, uh, and latterly at Yale. Uh, but they were all going on much the same time, and they comparing the brain activity. Partly, it was looking at the brain scans. They they'd been looking at them for ADHD. Uh, because that was a, a chemical imbalance in the brain, which you could see on on the uh, the brain scans because of the they put the you know something into the the bloodstream and could tra- track it going around the brain, and then they discovered they could do the same thing when they were doing Alzheimer's research. Uh, uh, they're doing MRIs and asking people with Alzheimer's questions and uh, you're looking at the brain activity. Uh, they then applied the same techniques to looking at dyslexia. And they had the, the dyslexic brain and the non-dyslexic brain. And they discovered, generally speaking, that uh, in someone who's not dyslexic, if you ask them a question like spell cat, the spelling bit of the brain lit up, but nothing else. If you asked a dyslexic to spell cat, the whole brain lit up. In other words, dyslexics are using their whole brain to do something as simple as spelling cat because uh, and the difference is in the, the concept and uh, what most people hear is spell, which is the instruction, and then cat is the object. And so they go to the spelling bit and cat is what's being spelled. But if you're dyslexic, what you hear is cat. So you have the whole concept of a cat in your head, yeah, which lights up the whole brain because it's a, 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 you know, a very, very complex 
uh, multifaceted object, a cat. Uh, and, uh, and by the time you've got to, oh, yes, and what was the question? Uh, yes. Which is very much uh, a description of being dyslexic. Uh, you know, the subtitles, you know, dyslexia, or what was the question? Um, <laughs> because they're, they're very busy visualizing or, or internalizing their whole brain going around this entire concept uh, that to get to something as simple as spelling a three-letter word is far too difficult. Well, uh, and this is the difference. And it's taken me 50 years to get to that. It's not something that, uh, that's been common knowledge all that long. It took me quite a long time, well, maybe not 50 years, to, to actually understand why dyslexia makes learning so very difficult. And it's because of the way the brain works and the difference in the way the brain works. Uh, and the, the activity of the brain prevents the acquisition of reading and writing skills very often. Uh, although, thank God, the computer now uh, helps to bring them back because the computer can read things aloud uh, and you can dictate your answers to the computer. Uh, and you, you, know, you don't even have to use the touch screen. But if you are, you can have big different colored buttons and so on uh, for yes and no and the, the right kind of question. Uh, and so you can, you can do uh, some kind of assessment using a computer without being able to read and write and actually get somewhere uh, and demonstrate your knowledge. Moira, you, were, you met the Queen when she uh, gave you an award. Can you tell us a little bit about that, that experience? And uh, the, the royal family also have a bit of dyslexia, don't they? Yes. Uh, something I was aware of before I actually got the award. Now, I, in 2014, early to the beginning of 2014 i got a letter uh you know saying that i had been nominated for an mbe would i accept and it wasn't on embossed paper from buckingham palace it was on a, a kind of fairly thin paper and it looked as though it had been photocopied uh, and i thought it's a wind up <laughs> so i didn't really do very didn't really do very much about it. Uh, and uh, then I got another one saying, you know, did you get this letter? Please respond. So I, I filled in the form and sent it off thinking it was still a wind up. But if they had my address anyway, uh, I wasn't telling them anything that they didn't know. Uh, and then my sister came in for coffee or something and this letter was lying around uh, and she kind of exploded and she said, you're getting an MBE. I said, don't be silly. It's a wind up. But in fact, my sister being my sister, uh, 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 went off and um, inquired of some friends. She, she's a PA to uh, uh, one of the professors, uh, one of the medical professors at Edinburgh University, uh, uh, who had all sorts of awards from royalty. Uh, uh, and he assured her that it was genuine. Uh, and so I wasn't told that this had just come completely out of the blue. And it wasn't until it was announced in the newspapers uh, that I discovered that uh, it was co colleagues, some parents of children I'd worked with, some families I'd worked with, some colleagues like Gavin Reed, who is a very distinguished academic, uh, working, I've worked with Gavin for many years on dyslexia, uh, and psychologists and uh, a, a number of people who, who were really quite important, had nominated me, which I didn't know. 
uh, which was very nice. And so we, I, I elected to wait until there was an awards uh, ceremony at Holyrood House in Edinburgh rather than go all the way to London uh, because that meant I could have a big party in the garden afterwards rather than a hotel in London. Uh, and my brother came over from the States to escort my sisters and I to the palace, which was very nice. And um, in we went and they announced, uh, when you went into the, uh, the, the receiving room of the palace, it was announced what you were getting your award for. Uh, and mine was supporting children and families with dyslexia. Uh, and Her Majesty pinned the medal on me uh, and it said that there seems to be a lot more of it about. And knowing that she had grandchildren who, who, who were dyslexic, uh, I committed the sin of contradicting the monarch, which apparently you're not supposed to do, by saying, well, not really, Your Majesty. We're just better at identifying it these days. Uh, in which case, she shook my hand. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, and on I went. But it sort of, 50 years on, when Her Majesty was at school, there would have been no such thing as dyslexia. Yes. And her grandchildren who struggled with literacy and, uh, and uh, issues uh, and needed a lot of external support and help and then went on to get university degrees. I have to say you know, they did. But, uh, you know, she was clearly aware of dyslexia and its impact and the fact that it could be supported and dealt with. Which was nice. Well, fantastic, Moira. Thank you for sharing that. And in the next part of this podcast, I want to ask you about some of the stories of people that you've seen come through that whole process, maybe successes, maybe even failures, and some advice that you would give some folks. So we're going to stop now and we'll uh, continue in the next podcast, the next section. Okay? Okay. This podcast is sponsored by DyslexiaProductivityCoaching.com. It's my day job when I'm not hosting this podcast. Tell me, do you know what you want to achieve in the workplace, but you're struggling with how to achieve it? Maybe you suspect some traits of dyslexia are getting in the way. Well, that's where Dyslexia Productivity Coaching comes in, because we give you a simple productivity system for your Apple devices that harnesses the creativity that comes with your dyslexia. It includes proven methods like note-taking, reminders, speech-to-text, mind mapping, and more, all tailored to your needs. It'll free up your time and help you achieve outstanding results. Book a complimentary call to discuss it with me, and if you do it soon, I may also be available to coach you personally via Zoom. So don't be shy. Go to dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com or swipe up and book it now.